week's series through the book of Mark. And just as kind of an introduction, just as a reminder about some of those things, uh, Mark is probably written by the gospel writer John Mark, who if you're familiar with the book of Acts, and all this is from last week, so this is the only part that's the same from last week. Um, In the book of Acts, we see that John Mark goes on the missionary journey with Paul. Um, Somehow, we don't know where, but somehow John Mark gets connected to the apostle Peter, and it appears that Peter told John Mark about the life of Jesus, the things that happened, because Mark's gospel seems to be from uh, Peter's point of view. Uh, apparently, Peter went to Rome and became the pastor there, and then the, church, or the, the Romans uh, actually killed Peter and crucified him. I, I told you last week, church history tells us that Peter actually refused to be crucified upright and so he demanded to be crucified upside down so that he wouldn't be crucified exactly the way that Jesus was. Mark hears about this and decides to write to the church at Rome and tell them and remind them, listen, I know that this is a tough time for you. Your pastor has just died. He was killed by your, your government and I know some of the questions that are going to ha- happen because of that and I want to remind you about who Jesus is who King Jesus is. Remind you that he's still on the throne. It doesn't feel that way, but I want to remind you that Jesus is still on the throne. I didn't really plan this. It didn't even dawn on me until this morning as I was praying through the sermon, but uh, that this eight-week series will run us all the way up to the election and then a little after. But what a reminder for us today that Jesus is on the throne. Regardless of what happens in November, Jesus is on the throne. And uh, as we begin this morning, I just want to remind us one thing, uh, one last thing from last week, uh, and that is this, that uh, the kingdom of God, if you've ever heard that phrase, it can be a little confusing. The kingdom of God can be understand, understood like this. That's when God's people are in God's land under God's rule. God's people are in God's land under God's rule. All right, so with all that said, that's just the introduction. Let's get to uh, Mark 2. What's going to happen this morning is, is that there's actually three questions that the Pharisees are going to ask Jesus. Uh, and they're actually, we talk bad about the Pharisees a lot. They're hypocrites and they're vain and you know, they're arrogant and all these other things. And that's all true, honestly. It, it's all true. Every bad rat the Pharisees get is fair. But this morning, they're going to ask three really good questions. I mean, three really good questions that if we're being honest with ourselves, uh, we'd probably ask them too in some ways. And so uh, the first one comes in these first 11 verses. Let me read them for us as we begin. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum, or Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, no, uh, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they, that is the four men, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. This is the first question. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him, questioned, sorry, within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now, this is a pretty familiar classic Sunday school story. So I'm sure many of you could have told us that story without even looking at your Bibles. But just to kind of remind us of the story, to kind of hit the, the big points, here's what happens. There's these, uh, Jesus is at home. It's, it's probably not his home. It's probably a home that was given to Jesus so that he could kind of use as a kind of a headquarters for operations for his ministry in Capernaum. And he's preaching the word there. And it's going so well that the, the room where he is, the house where he is, is full. In fact, it's full all the way out into the streets. Four men, four friends of this paralyzed man say, listen, we got to go take him to Jesus. And when they get there, though, there's, they can't get in. They can't even get in enough to be like, hey, you know, hey Jesus, we've, we've got this man that needs your healing. And so they think to themselves, well, what are we going to do? So they go up to the roof. Now, roofs at this point were probably made like this. There would be timbers that go across, and then you would put sticks and palms and that kind of deal and then you would put clay, mud, on top of that. Up to a foot deep of mud would be on top. Of clay, mud would be on top. And so they say, well, we'll just, we'll just dig a hole through this clay. Now, I've always thought about the hole being, you know, like this big, you know, where they could see Jesus. And then it dawned on me, no, Micah, they lowered the man in. It, it, it couldn't be just like this big. It would probably be like, I was looking at it this morning, it would probably be about the size of this table, but long enough for a man to fit through. It would be a huge hole in this roof uh, that they had to dig. So not only is it a big deal that they dug that hole, it took a long time for them to dig that big of a hole through that kind of situation. Mark tells us that Jesus saw their faith. The, the men's faith. Now, when we think about Jesus seeing faith, you know, sometimes we talk about faith, especially in America, in a lot of different ways, right? Sometimes we think about faith as it's like, listen, you just got to believe. I know it's not going to happen. It's very unlikely. You just got to believe. Now, my notes say at this point, insert being a Georgia sports fan joke about the playoffs. But, and I know that Georgia has struggled in the playoffs, but, you know, I'm not even going to go there. So their faith, rather, was not in something, just believing in something that was unlikely to happen. Rather, their faith was, listen, Jesus has the authority over this man's sickness. Our friend's paralysis. Jesus can do something about this. He has the right and the power to change his condition. Their faith was so strong that when they get to the house and they see, hey, this isn't what we thought. They clearly, by the way, Mark is telling the gospel story, they clearly think, hey, we're just going to walk up to the front door. We're going to say, hey, Jesus, can you come out and heal him? And it'll all happen. That when they have to go up to the roof and begin to dig a hole in the roof, they're not deterred. They're not thinking, you know, I don't know, maybe Jesus can't. Like, is this really worth it? for us to go to all this trouble? They say, no, this is clearly worth it for us to go to all this trouble because Jesus can really do it. G James says that faith without works is dead. These men had a faith that was alive. It was so alive that it didn't get deterred by little things. They just kept going and going and going. And so Jesus sees their faith and he rewards their faith by healing the man. Well, not exactly, right? That's kind of the weird part of this story. You read it along and you think, and then Jesus heals the man. Well, that's not exactly the order that it goes. Instead, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. I can, I can almost imagine a disciple, probably Peter, because that's who Peter is, kind of coming up to Jesus and being like, 
hey, Jesus, uh, you know that like, he didn't come here for his sins. He came here because he's on a, a cot, because he's paralyzed, right? Like, he needs you to heal him. Did you, did you understand? Like, maybe you missed something. Just, just want to let you know. And, and, and yet we see here that the Pharisees ask this really good question. Uh, they ask it in, his, in their hearts. The rest of the questions are going to actually say out loud. But they ask this question in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? Or why does King Jesus talk this way? Now, what they wanted to know, what they wanted to know is, how can this man say he forgives sins? Right? How can he say he forgives sins? In fact, they say that he's blaspheming. They say that he's blaspheming because blasphemy is when you talk evil about God. Let me, let me put it. I've been trying to think of how to explain that part. Because the Pharisees are almost right. Let me, uh, and here's the analogy that I think might help us. If, if I walked out today, and I don't think he's going to mind me saying this. If I walked out today and I gave Seth the best right hook I could give him and punched him in the nose... It would do Seth no good, and it would do me no good if Miss Maddie looked at me and said, you know what, Micah, I forgive you, right? I don't need Miss Maddie to forgive me. I need Seth to forgive me, right? In the same way, when Jesus looks at this man and he says, son, your, your sins are forgiven, what he's saying is, is that, hey, when you lied when you were a boy, when you hated your brother, when you lusted after that girl in the street, all of those things that you did, you did them against me. And I have the right. They were against me. I am the king of the universe. And those sins were against me and my law. And I don't hold them against you. In fact, I forgive them for you. Your slate is now clean. Jesus is saying that like he has the power, right? And that's why the Pharisees think this man is blaspheming sin, not simply because he doesn't have the right to forgive sin, but because he's saying that sins are against him. Now, we may be thinking, why does Jesus talk this way for a different reason, right? We may be asking, why doesn't Jesus say, son, your body is healed, right? I mean, that's what the, the man came for. Well, that's why his friends brought him. That's why his friends took the time out of their day to put him on a cot and, and take ropes with them and bring them to the house and carry his body, then go up on the roof and then dig a big hole and then lower him down. That's his real need, isn't it? I mean, that's the way the story reads, is that what the man needs is not forgiveness of some heinous sin. What he really needs is to be able to walk. I mean, that's how I read this story. This man's greatest need wasn't his sin. I mean, this man's greatest need was his sin. Man, completely botched that reading. This man's greatest need was his sin. And his only hope was the forgiveness that Jesus offered. Now, it's easy to say that, but it's hard to, to believe that. At least it is for me. It's hard to believe that this man's greatest need was his sin. You see, it's why Jesus can say that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to be without your hand and without sin than with your hand in hell, right? And here's why. Think, think if we could just create a hypothetical story where they do lower the man down into the house. And Jesus looks at them and he says, son, you're healed. Your, your friend's faith has, has made you well. You're healed. Go and walk. And he leaves there. He's still got the sin that covered his heart. He's still separated from God. He still has an eternity of punishment waiting for him. 
And, and let's be honest, he will grow old, and then he will struggle to walk again. I mean, he has not really done much for this man if he doesn't heal him. But this is where it kind of reaches us. Because if, if you and I really believe that people's greatest problem is their sin, and your greatest problem is your sin, and their greatest problem is their sin, then when we support the PRC, I'm going to give just a few ways this might touch us. When we support the PRC, it's not enough to want young women and men to go into their doors and, and to save that baby's life. If we don't want them to walk through our doors and have their souls saved here and to be among us, it's not enough for us to want them to talk to Carmen if they're not talking to Jesus. Because what they really need, now as much as we want them to save the baby's life, as much as preserving life is important, what they really need, what the baby really needs, is Jesus. When your friend or coworker asks you for advice, their greatest need is not their problem. It's not their issue. It's not their frustrations with work or their spouse or any of that. Their greatest need is their sin. And so giving them counsel isn't enough if you don't give them Jesus. Finally, if our country's greatest need is sin and not our politics, then what our country really needs is not our vote, it's our king. Let me say that again, because th that's hit me this week. If our country's greatest need is sin and not politics, then what our country really needs is not my vote, it's my king. What it really needs is our king. All right, that's just the first question that the Pharisees asked, all right? And maybe it'll get easier, I don't know. So the second story here begins in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, that is Jesus, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, and when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the, the beginning of this with Matthew sounds very familiar to uh, the story of the fisherman. Jesus is walking along. He sees someone doing their profession. He looks at them and says, Hey, you follow me. And he puts down his job and he gets up and he leaves. He leaves his profession, he leaves his life, he leaves everything that he's known, and he follows Jesus. And that way it's kind of the same. But what's different is, is that now Jesus goes and eats with Matthew and with his friends who are also following Jesus. The Pharisees look at this and they see a man that's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Now, those two groups of people are, are probably this. Tax collectors were people who were Jews who, uh, when the Romans took over, the Romans needed a way to collect taxes, right? And so what they said was this, we're going to take some Jews, if you want to work for us, you can work for us, and then you can go to your fellow Jews, and you can get the money that they owe us, and you can take some off the top if you want. So what they did was they sold out their nation, the nation of Israel, they sold out their people, the Jews, and they were also stealing from them. 
right? So pretty terrible people in a way. When it says sinners, it may refer to just kind of general bad people, or it may specifically refer to prostitutes. Uh, the scriptures are not exactly clear when it uses that word. So not a group of people that we look at and we go, those are the good people, right? And that's the whole point. The Pharisees look at this and they go, wait, Jesus, uh, why are you eating with sinners? Uh, there we go. Why are you eating? Why does King Jesus eat with sinners? It's one thing for him to forgive sin, right? It's one thing for him to say, listen, son, uh, I know that you were a bad guy in the past, but that's over with, and I forgive you. It's another thing for him to say, I, I want to eat with you. I want to sit down and dine with you. And when Jesus is doing this, he's not sitting down for like a business meal where he's going to give them his sales pitch of how to join his, you know, multi-marketing scheme kind of deal. He's not sitting down like an elementary school lunch. Uh, I, wasn't, I didn't have this in my notes, but I'll tell you this story. So when I was uh, in second grade, we moved. We moved like in the summer before second grade year. And... Uh, my, my parents went to parent-teacher conference, and they came home, and my mom said, hey, Micah, there's a kid in your class named Andrew. He's got a really good family. We really want you to be friends with Andrew. And I was a rule follower, and so I was like, I'm going to be friends with Andrew. That's how this goes. I didn't remember this about this time until in high school, and then Andrew uh, told me this part of the story that I had forgotten. For the first three months of second grade, I made sure that I sat beside Andrew every day at lunch. He didn't speak to me for three months. He never once spoke to me at lunch. I just was like, I'm going to sit by him. I don't care what he does. I'm going to sit by him, right? And you know what? We became best friends. We were best friends all the way through high school. Now he's a, a pastor in Alabama, actually still in our hometown. And uh, we were best friends because I was like, I'm just going to sit with him at lunch, right? There's just something about, I, I was like, I can't control where I sit in class. I can't control if he plays with me during recess. But he, if he has to sit by me, eventually we'll become friends, right? Because there's something about eating with people that brings us together right? There was something in my head, maybe my dad had given me that piece of advice, just sit by my lunch, kid. Um, and because there, something is about that. When we sit down and we eat with, together, we form connections and bonds. And so when Jesus is sitting down with, to eat with sinners, he's communicating, these are my friends. In fact, these are my family, almost. If we weren't in a pandemic, I would spend a lot of time at this point talking about how important it is for us as, a, as God's people to eat together. Just to do that, just to eat, just to get together for meals at, out to eat or in our homes. And when we're not in a pandemic, when we're not scared about contracting and, and distributing a crazy novel virus, we'll bring this point back up. So just kind of hold that in your back pocket. I'll talk about it hopefully, you know, in six months, maybe in a year. I don't know. But that's important. I've got a great book in my office, by the way, if you want to read a book about that called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. So why is eating with sinners important to Jesus? We get why it's important to the Pharisees. They don't like it. But why is it important to Jesus? Well, this is what he says. Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. You don't understand. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, that sounds like great news if you're sick. That sounds like great news if you're sick, right? I mean, if you're well, you're like, Jesus is basically saying, I don't have any, you don't have any need of me. I don't need to, to help you if you're well. 
I only need to help those who are sick. He goes on to say, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. That's also really good news. If you're a sinner. I like to say this. The good news of the gospel starts with really bad news. The good news of the gospel starts with really bad news. Before we can really understand Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins, we have to realize we are sick sinners. Just like the man that his four friends had to lower him down on a cot. In the same way spiritually, I am sick and I am sinful. Church, I hate to say this about you, but you are sick and sinful. If you happen to be a guest with us today, welcome to Pleasant View. We are sick and we are sinful. And I don't like talking like that. I don't like knowing that about myself. When Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, he's not saying that the Pharisees are good. They're right with God. They're fine. They're doing everything that's right. They're following all the laws perfectly. And so they're good with God. No, he's saying this. He's saying, listen, you Pharisees, you don't realize how sick and sinful you are, but these do. And because of that, they know that they need me. Because of that, I have come for these people, the people who say, Jesus, we need you. We are sick and we are sinful and we need a righteous physician to heal us. If you're a good person, what do you need Jesus for? And, and you know, a lot of times as churches, as I've been in ministry, I've realized that some of the hardest ministry may be here in the Bible Belt where everyone is a believer, everybody knows Jesus, everybody was baptized when they were nine, everybody has gone to vacation Bible school, and the distinction is not so clear as it may be in other parts, certainly not in other parts of the world. And one way that we can help that is that if we as a church will talk loudly about Jesus, but we'll also talk honestly about we are sinners. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he wrote this great book, Life Together. Uh, I've got this copy. I think I've got another copy in the study if you want to read that one as well. Two good book recommendations this morning. He says this. He was actually, a, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a martyr of Hitler during World War II. In fact, he actually died in a Nazi prison just the same week that uh, the Allies would defeat and they would have to release their prisoners. So he, he just missed getting free by like a week. Um, he's got a great story. Um, he actually came to America to visit a seminary in New York. Uh, he had friends that asked him to stay in America and to avoid persecution in Germany. And he said, no, um, if Germany is ever going to rebuild after the Nazis, uh, I will have no right to help in rebuilding it if I'm not there while Hitler is tearing it down. And so he went back and uh, he, was, uh, he was put in prison for not giving in to Hitler. Um, he wrote this in, in this book. It's toward the end of this book, Life Together. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is discovered among the righteous. We know that's true. A lot of times someone in our churches, we find out about some big nasty sin and we just think, I can't believe one of us would be like that. And so what do we do? We remain alone with our sin. We live in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is we are sinners and it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand. 
because it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as a sinner that you are to the God that loves you. He wants you as you are. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and to your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. That's kind of Jesus that we serve that was so foreign to the Pharisees that we serve a king who doesn't come at first to overthrow the rebels and destroy the, you know, the resistance. He comes and he says, I love people like that who say, listen, King Jesus, we have been rebellious, we have been sinful, but we need you. And that's who we are. As a church, as believers, that is who we are. And one day, this is the best news of the good news, one day when Jesus comes back the second time, or, or when we die, if that happens before then, he will make us perfect in an instant. And we won't struggle with sin any longer. We will get to do the things that we've wanted to do, the good things we've wanted to do, and we won't anymore do the bad things that we didn't want to do. And that kind of leads us to the last thing, uh, as weird as that may sound, uh, the last question the Pharisees have, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Seems like a good thing to do. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said this, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So apparently John's disciples were fasting, the Pharisees' disciples, they were fasting. And fasting seems like a really good thing to do. Jesus, even on the Sermon on the Mount, assumes we will fast because he says, when you fast, do this, right? When you fast, don't do this. He is assuming that you and I, as followers of Jesus, will fast. But apparently his apostles were not fasting. And that's a pretty, I mean, if I'm a Pharisee, I'm asking the same question. Hey, why aren't we having to fast and, and you're not teaching your people to fast? And what Jesus says is so interesting. And that kind of brings us to the last question this morning. Why don't King Jesus' disciples fast? Well, what's interesting about fasting, we kind of need to remind ourselves, for in Jesus' day, fasting would have been viewed according to what's called the Day of Atonement. If you remember, there was this one great day where the people of Israel, the great high priest, would offer the big sacrifice that would cover all of the people of Israel. And it would be a day almost like a holiday, but we only think of holidays as good things. It would be a day where the people of Israel would stop from everything they were doing. They wouldn't work on this day, and they would fast. In fact, uh, Leviticus 16 says this, It shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh day, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself and do no work, either the native or the stranger. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, you shall be clean from the Lord from all your sin. It was a day to remember that you, we as people have sinned a great sin, many sins. And it was a day for us to think about that. And because of that, they would fast from their sins. What's the connection between fasting and thinking about sin? Well, um, unfortunately in ministry, a lot of times you end up around a lot of grieving people. 
people who are grieving over the death of a loved one or a friend. And one of the things that you often need to remind grieving people is to eat. It sounds very simple, but once you go through a loss, you kind of get overwhelmed. And you're so heartbroken that just eating kind of skips your mind. So when we fast, when the Day of Atonement, when the Israelites would fast, what they were doing is this. It was a physical reminder to themselves that our sin is worth grieving over. It's worth putting food aside just as if someone had died because that's how important our sin is. That's how big our sin weighs on us. So why don't Jesus' disciples fast? Well, this is what he said. Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the groom, let me just put it that way, as long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. Weddings are celebrations, right? I mean, married men, right? Weddings are celebrations. That was a good day in your life. It's why we eat at them. It's why we bring our friends and invite them to them. It's why sometimes we even have dancing at our weddings because it's a time to celebrate. And Jesus is saying, listen, the apostles have me. They don't need to be mourning anything. They need to be celebrating. When Jesus is with us, when Jesus is with us physically, we don't mourn our sin. We get to celebrate the end of our sin. So what does this mean for us 2,000 years later? Well, it actually really helps us. Jesus helped us by giving us one more verse. He says this, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. As much as of of a blessing as the Holy Spirit is, the fact that Jesus is not with us physically here on earth is something that we should mourn over. We don't talk about this at church. We don't long enough for the day when Jesus will be with us physically. But Jesus is saying that when that we should fast for two reasons. We should fast over our sin, and we should fast over the fact that Jesus isn't here. One day he will be. Let me read for you. When he comes, this is from Revelation 19. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he, shall, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on the white horse. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John gives us a picture of the wedding feast when the king walks in and we will get to be with him forever. So are you longing for the wedding? Are you having too much fun without the king here? You see, do you see your sin like Jesus does? Do you see yourself as a sinner? But do you see that King Jesus came for sinners and he wants to be with us? He wants to sit and eat with us like a friend does. 
One day he's going to come and he's going to make us clean. That's going to be a great day. Let's uh, pray and then we're going to sing together one last.